If you love how Dan Rather unravels amazing true stories, you got to check out Music's Greatest Mysteries. That podcast will really get you thinking. Welcome to Dan Rather's The Big Interview, the thought-provoking podcast with in-depth interviews with music and cultural icons only Dan Rather can deliver. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from classic rock to country and alternative. We cover it all right here on Dan Rather's The Big Interview. So sit back and enjoy these magnificent stories from the artists that lived it. Here's your host, Dan Rather. Tonight, he once fronted that rock band with the funny name, but Darius Rucker is now much more than just Hootie and the Blowfish. He's blazing a bright new trail in the world of country music. I don't want to take pop songs and put fiddle on it and call it a country song. If it's not a country song, I don't want to play it. You can really breathe in San Jose. They've got a lot of space. And more than 50 years after her first single dropped, music legend Dionne Warwick has a new album celebrating a lifetime of music. I'm being given so many incredible accolades at this point in my life. When I got the call, you're nominated for a Grammy. The reaction was, oh, you're lying. <laughs> a Grammy for what? What did I do? Don't make me over. Two signature voices in the spotlight once again, tonight on The Big Interview. Don't make me over. Let's go to Vegas at California or Carolina where the summer breeze blows. You can take me to the moon and back. I can kick my boots off, relax in your Cadillac. Today, Darius Rucker is one of country music's hottest stars. In 2009, he won Best New Artist from the Country Music Association at the age of 43. And this year, he won a Grammy for Best Solo Country Performance. But there's a reason why he was a relatively late bloomer in the country world. That's because he had a previous life as a rock star, the frontman for the mega hit band Hootie and the Blowfish. tour starts on the 29th, so I'll be pretty much home till then. It is a one-of-a-kind journey for the singer-songwriter who says his wide musical tastes are firmly rooted in his hometown of Charleston, South Carolina, where he still lives with his family. 
Well, first of all, thank you very much for doing this. Oh, no, thank you for having me. I've got thank a you. lot of questions I want to ask, but did you come into this interview saying to yourself, gosh, there's one thing I want to get across. I'm, I hope he'll ask me this. No, not really. I mean, I was just, when I got a phone call and they said uh, that Dan Rather wanted to interview you, I mean, I was just, actually thought, I thought they were kidding. I thought my manager was, was, was joking on me, but I'm just honored to be in your presence. I mean, I went to the University of South Carolina and I majored in broadcast journalism. I didn't one of the know reasons, that. One of the reasons I did is because I was wanted to be the next Dan Rather. I just thought you, you, know, you were <laughs> such a big part of my childhood growing up. Well, listen, if you decide to give up music, let me know. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll find a place for you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but did you seriously think about going into broadcasting? Yeah, I mean, so I wanted to be in broadcasting. I wanted to be a newscaster and sportscaster and do, that, do all that stuff. That's what I went to school for. Well, that didn't happen, but it didn't work out all that badly. No, I'll tell you, I'm doing okay. This job's pretty good. I'll take it. <laughs> well, let's talk about how you got to where you are. Give me the biography. Yeah, I grew up in Charleston. I was uh, one of six kids, one of five for until I was 11. Then my little brother came along, and ever since I was four years old, all I wanted to do was sing. I mean, I used to, I used to sit around the house and sing Al Green songs for my mom's friends using a little a little salt and pepper shaker as my microphone. Then I, I would do that all the time. It was just everything. And I was I was lucky. I had a, I had a mom who really let me do what I wanted to do musically because I was an AM radio kid, and I just listened to the radio and turned to a song. that you know, When I heard a song I liked, I'd listen to it. And, you know, my brothers and sisters would give me a hard time, you know, because I listened to everything, you know, rock and roll, R&B, country, whatever was on the radio. If I liked it, I listened to it. And, uh... You know, I get I get some grief from my brothers, especially my older brother, about uh, you know, why you listen to that white boy music, and I'd always hear my mom go, "Let him listen to what he wants to listen to," and and so I just listen to everything. I think a lot of people would be surprised to find that in, in your home that you listen to country music. Yeah, for me it was the radio. It was I just I thought it sounded great, you know. And then Kenny Rogers came along, and that was huge for me. I mean, that was when Kenny Rogers was that guy that was awesome for me because I could hear him. You know, you flip through a country station, you hear a Kenny Rogers song, then you hear a Buck Owens song, and then you flip to a pop station and you hear Kenny Rogers song, and then you hear a, a you know, a Cheap Trick song. And it, for me, it was I just thought this guy is just, I just thought he was great. When I was a kid, he was one of the probably biggest three, three biggest influences in my musical life because he was just everywhere. Coward of the County, and and they, they were so real and vivid, and, and the stories were so. You, know, you knew what it was about. But I just loved Kenny Rogers. He was he was huge for me. Well, he's got to know when to. Yeah, the, the gambler. When to walk away it remains a classic to this Absolutely. day. Absolutely. I remember being young and hearing the gambler and just going, you know, thinking, how do you sit down and come up with that? You know, how do you sit down and come up with a story that that's vivid? And, I mean, you could see it. You, it was like a movie in your head when you listened to that song. And I, I loved him. Well, Charlie Pride was, to my knowledge, the first singer of African-American heritage who really cracked through in the country. Were you aware of Charlie Pride? Oh, absolutely. Everybody was aware of Charlie Pride. He was, you know, it was it was one of those things when I did listen to country music. My mom would always say, you know, you know, make sure you, you know, you know who Charlie Pride is. You know, of course I know who Charlie Pride is. He was he was so big because he was, like you said, he was the only African American doing it. Kiss an angel, good morning. Over like the devil when you get back home. You know, I was that was a shocker for me when I started having some country music and. I didn't think about it, and then I had my first hit, my first hit, and somebody came up and told me I was the first African American in 30 years or something. Probably since Charlie music. Pride. Yeah, since Charlie Pride, and that was I was like, wow, that's just crazy to think about. But Charlie was he was big in, in that community. He was 
he was somebody doing something that we weren't supposed to do, and he was he was proving everybody wrong. So he was big for us. Don't think I don't think about it. You mentioned Kenny Rogers, and one of the things that you said to yourself, you'd hear these great songs, The Gambler and other songs, and say, how does he do that? How does he put that together? Now you write songs. You write most of the songs you sing. Tell us about the process. How do you do that? For me, it's, I, no matter if I'm writing by myself or I'm writing with somebody, I always write about something about my life. Every, most songs I write are about my life at some point, maybe if even if it was twenty years ago, you know, you just put yourself in that place again and write it, and and I just find being honest in your songs are, is a lot better than trying to write some fiction. You know, you've written, you know, songs that were fiction, but most of the songs I write at some point, it's about me, and so when you're telling a story about you, it seems to be a lot easier. For me. Well, you get an idea, you think of some words or a title of a song. Do you write it down right away? What do you do? Or you wake up in the middle of the night? I've done all that. I've I've been at a point where I wrote it down, and now we're lucky. The iPhone is so great that you know, like I've I've lost so many songs because I, you know, you come up with this great idea in your head, you go, I'll write that down later, and you can't remember it later. And now with the iPhone, you just, you know, sing it into the voice memo, and it's there forever. And and so that that's really made songwriting a lot easier for me because you just come up with these ideas and just put them right down, and then you can go finish it later. I wouldn't say you're one of the few, but it's not everybody who writes their own songs and then sings their own songs. I consider myself a songwriter, and, and so I love singing songs about me and songs about my life. And so, if you're gonna do that, you got you got to write them. I can be Your name is synonymous with Charleston, South Carolina. The street here named for you. What does Charleston mean to you? Charleston means home. The, uh, when I was a kid, I used to say all the time, I'm getting out of this town. And I moved to Columbia for 10 years, going to college and starting the band. And the band had decided that we needed to stay in Columbia to make it together. And then when things got big, we actually had a meeting where we said to each other, let's you can live, where, live wherever you want. And the only place I wanted to go was Charleston, South Carolina. You can see it in the clothes I wear. You can hear it when I talk. Ball cap boots and jeans and a little southern drawl. I could be up at Ohio, back home in Caroline. Don't matter what state I'm in, I'm in a southern state of mind. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Darius Rucker and Dion Warwick. 
Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guests are Darius Rucker and Dion Warwick. Darius Rucker's rise to fame began in the 90s as the lead singer of the band Hootie and the Blowfish. That band's most successful album, the multi-platinum Cracked Rearview, is the 16th all-time best-selling album in the United States. By the end of the 90s, Hootie and the Blowfish had sold millions of albums and won two Grammys, one for Best New Artist, the other for the band's mega-hit, Let Her Cry. First of all, what about this name, Hootie and the Blowfish? Oh, it was. I was in this sh a show choir in college called uh, Carolina Alive. I went to South Carolina, and, and we had a group called Carolina Alive. And we, I used to give people nicknames all the time. And uh, there was one guy who had big eyes and wore glasses and looked like an owl. And I started calling him Hootie. And, and his best friend uh, had these huge cheeks on him. And one night I called him the Blowfish, and the whole group started calling him the Blowfish. And one, uh, we were at a party one night, and they walked in, and I said. I'll never forget this night. I say, look, Hootie and the Blowfish. And in the back of my mind, I'd lied to myself. I said, what a great name for a band. And we started the band like a week later. And I said to Mark that we're going to name the band Hootie and the Blowfish. And he said, whatever. And, you know, I try not to have any regrets in life, you know. And I never thought that people would call me Hootie from naming the band that. But, you know, that, that came out of that. But the thing about that name is whether you like it or not, you just never forget it. It was one of those names that once you heard it, you always remembered it. And so I think it helped us a lot more than it hurt us. One of the reputations that the band uh, Hootie and the Blowfish had was they play rock and roll, but it's not angry rock and roll. Yeah, that was that was, and for us when we were starting to break out, that was tough for us because grunge was so big and grunge was so full of anger and despair. And, and even when we got our record deal with Atlantic, uh, one of the big guys at Atlantic went to the president and told him he couldn't put Cracked Review out. Said uh, if you put this record out, we'll be the laughing stock of music. I mean, because that was, it was happy. Yeah, because it was happy. It was, it was just, it wasn't grunge, and grunge was everywhere. Grunge was king. What did you think about going that direction under the, what used to be called, man wants a green suit, turn on the green light, if grunge is in, you're going to do grunge? Nah, we were, we knew we were going to be true to ourselves. We were already writing the songs we wanted to play and doing what we were going to do, and we never thought, never once thought about going grunge. There was enough grunge bands in the Carolinas trying to do that. We were just, and we had already staked our niche. You know, like I, we were playing for nine years before we got a record deal. And so we, we already had our following and the things we thought about, thought about changing the name and thought if we did that, we'll be starting all over. You know, never thought about changing the music because it was who we were. I don't know the music business very well, but I know it well enough to know that like a lot of other businesses or professions, including journalism, you can have a very tight-knit group. But once you get to the top or near the top, tension is developed. Did that happen with the band? No, no, not at all. And I think one of the main, I think a lot of times with bands, 
the tension happens because there's one guy who thinks he's more important than the others. And we never, none of us ever felt that way. But that would be you with this man, I mean, realistically. Yeah, but I never, I always knew that, that, that I couldn't, we wouldn't have made it if it wasn't the four of us. And there was never a moment where I thought, you know, I should be making more money, these guys, or I just never thought that way. It was just the four of us, we had, we had our business set up, we were doing it that way, and we were going to do it that way. And we, and like, we were like brothers, we were, we were best friends. And, you know, we'd, we'd come off the road and we'd all go our separate ways, and 30 minutes later we're calling each other going, you know, where are we going out today? And I never let people get in my ear with that, you know, if somebody started getting in my ear with that, you know, get away from me, that's not how we operate, that's not how we do business. And so it, it never got to that for me, it was always the four of us. So you take off in the 90s, the 90s belong to you. You're selling records, you're selling out big arenas. But nothing lasts forever. Yep. So it begins to uh, not fade away, but off the top. Yeah. When and how did you decide to go country? In uh, about 1989 or 90, uh, this guy named Radney Foster came out with this record called Del Rio, Texas, 1959. And I had. I loved country music and listened to it, but it was never something I thought, I'm gonna go play this someday. And then this record comes out, and really, from the first time I put it on, it blew my mind. I, I just really went, I mean, I, I called up, I'll never forget, I, I called up Mark and said, you gotta hear this Radney record. I mean, it's unbelievable. From that day on, I said it all the time to the band. You know, someday I'm, I'm gonna make country, I'm gonna make a country record someday. And, and so we're on the road constantly, we're on the road every year for like 10 years in a row at this point. And, Finally, Sony, our drummer, comes up and goes, you know, guys, I'm just tired of being on the road all the time. You know, let's let's take some time off. And I said, okay, let's take some time off. And so I decided I was going to do my country record. And to be honest with you, I didn't get a record deal. Like, Doc McGee, who's a big-time manager, is our manager, and I told him I was doing a country record. And I told him, you know, I'm just going to do it in the basement with my buddies. Uh, I'm going to get a bunch of buddies together, write some songs, and go record it. Because I, I wouldn't have given me a record deal. I mean, why would you give the guy from Hootie and the Blowfish who just had this great big career and now he wants to do country music, you know, why give him a record deal? I was going to say, did your agent, your wife or somebody come to you and say, are you smoking something very expensive? You, now you're going to be a country star? <laughs> you know, it was, it was funny because my wife was the one who really was, was pushing me. She's like, you know, you, you should do it, you should do it. You, know, you can sing anything. And, and Doc, I got really lucky. Doc was... Uh, Doc, who my manager, was at dinner with, with the president of uh, Capitol Records, Mike Dungan, one night. And he says to Mike Dungan, you know, I've got this guy I want you to sign. And Mike Dungan's, Dungan was like, who, who? And he was like, and Doc being Doc said, you don't trust me? You know, I'm telling you, it's going to be great. He's like, all right. And, and so he t finally tells Dungan, it's me. It's Darius Rucker, Hootie the Blowfish. And I got so lucky because Mike Dungan looked at him and said, you know, I never really got that Hootie the Blowfish band, but I always thought that guy was a country singer. And they called me up that night, and I had a record deal with Capitol Records. We are one heartbeat in the We are one lasting answered prayer. Oh, we are one unbroken promise. And we are two. Went to Nashville. 
did you have any reservations about that? Or did someone say to you, listen, you're not going to make it in Nashville. Nashville's not your kind of town. The best thing that happened for me is I wasn't expecting to make it. For me, I had gotten lucky. Somebody else was going to pay for my record. I was going to get to make my country record. I was going to have that for me in my heart, and I could listen to it when I wanted to listen to it. And I didn't think that it was going to work. Like, even, even Dungan, he always says that even the people in his own building told him he was crazy. He, he always says that he uh, called the 13 people he thought were the tastemakers in Nashville when he decided to sign me, and 12 of them told him he was crazy. And the one guy who didn't say he was crazy is the guy who ended up producing my records. And, and so I don't, I don't know if any of us thought it could happen, but we made such a great first record and our first single. And then the thing that really did it for me was we did a radio tour where I got in the car with a radio rep and we drove around the country to 110 radio I didn't know anybody did that anymore. I mean, you read about Tammy Wynette, Merrill Haggard people doing it at one stage in their career, but we were talking about the 1950s or 60s. Well, yeah, well, that was funny. When I told them I wanted to do that, they were surprised. The label was surprised. They, because they, and I, they asked me, why do you want to do it? I was like, because I want to be the new guy. The one thing I didn't want to do is I didn't want to show up in Nashville going, you know, I sold 30 million records, I did this. Because that, that wasn't going to matter. What was going to matter is people getting to know me. And on that radio tour, I tell you, I, I had, I had radio programmers tell me that they never thought they'd play me. They, I had radio programmers tell me straight up, you know, I don't know if my audience is going to accept you. Not everybody would have done that, having reached the pinnacle as you had with rock and roll. I knew that was the only way I could make it. I, I knew the only way we could really make a dent in country music was if the people who were in charge of radio knew who I was. And sitting in front of somebody and talking like this is so much different than calling on the phone or, 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 or just sending your record out and saying, Pete plays. You know, I went in and I said to guys, you know, well, let me play the song for you. If you want to play it, great. If not, I understand. You know, I, like I've said, even said to them, I wouldn't have given me a record deal, so I'll understand if you wouldn't want to play my record. And, and it was just, it was really one of those moments where I was really glad that I was me. Because... I've never thought I was that great. I've never thought that anything I did, I, didn't, I, didn't, I haven't cured cancer, I haven't done anything. You know, I'm just a kid from South Carolina who's got an okay voice. Why do you think it's working for you in country? Because I, I think the main reason was that people realized how real it was for me. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't about money. It wasn't about, you know, trying to be a superstar. I was just going to do this in the basement with my buddies. It was about the music. I wanted to be country. I wanted to be, I wanted to play country music. And you wanted to play country music. And I grew up in an environment in Texas where if Ernest Tubb or at least Hank Williams didn't sure. sing it, I didn't know it. Uh -huh. But for me, country music was then and remains to this day in many ways, uh, mama, pickup truck, beer, prison, trains, sure. lost love. Absolutely. Is that the kind of music you sing? That's definitely a part of what I do. I mean, and country music today is so much about family. And, and that, that's, that's what the, the songs that seem to work for me are the songs that are about family. You know, songs like, you know, Don't Think I Don't Think About It or, or uh, It Won't Be Like This For Long. It won't be like this for long One day soon we'll look back laughing the week we 
just hold on It won't be like this for long You know, the songs that are really huge for me are all songs about family and about about living just a, a regular great life with, with the people that you love. And that was the, my main thing when I started, that if it's not country, I don't want to play it. I don't want to take pop songs and put fiddle on it and call it a country song. If it's not a country song, I don't want to play it. Headed down south to the land of the pines I'm thumbing my way in a North Carolina Staring up the road and pray to God I see headlights I made it down the coast in 17 hours Picking me a bouquet of dogwood flowers And I'm hoping for Riley I could see my baby tonight So rock me mama like a wagon wheel Rock me mama in the way you feel Hey, mama rock me When you started this new country career, did you thinking to yourself, I'm going to get back to the Grammys, or did, was that too wild a dream? Well, too wild a dream. Didn't think that. Didn't think, you know, didn't think I'd win a CMA. Didn't think, you know, I didn't think any of that. I, I just, I was making it for me. So I never thought that any of this stuff would happen to me. What's your all-time favorite solo? Oh, man, all-time favorite solo? Uh... Oh, no, no doubt about that. All, my all-time favorite thing I've ever done is uh, when I sang Amazing Grace one night a cappella. And it was just one of those moments. And my mom had died, and when my mom died, we, I, I, I couldn't pull myself to get off the road. It was, my, it was everything to me. And, 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 you know, she dies, and we go to the funeral, and then a few days later we're in a club, and I sang... Amazing Grace acapella, and it was just, that's my greatest musical moment on stage. What is it about Amazing Grace that makes it resonate with so many people? Uh, the song is, the, the words are, are so amazingly beautiful and so, you know, Amazing Grace, you know, that saved a wretch like me. You know, that's, that's, that's really what religion is all about. And then the thing that I think really gets people is the melody it's so sad. It's so sad that it, it just goes into your heart and it just, you know, ties a knot in your heart and, just, and when it starts, wants to pound out of your chest because the song is so perfect. I have this mental image. Your mother has passed. It's a month or two later. You're at a club and you sing an acapella in the club? In the club. What was the reaction? Oh, there were people crying because I was crying. You know, there were people, you know, just shocked. It was one of those things where... One of the one of the hardest things to do in a club is get people to be quiet between you know, and this place you could hear a pin drop. It's unfair to you. But can you just sing a few bars of Amazing Grace right now? <clears throat> Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that seed. Oh, rich like me, I was, was lost, oh, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. 
Thank you so much for doing that. Oh, thank you, sir. Absolutely. Very much appreciate it. Absolutely. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Darius Rucker and Dion Warwick. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guests are Darius Rucker and Dion Warwick. For decades, Dionne Warwick has belted out hits that made us want to sing along. It was way back in 1964 when she received her first Grammy nomination for the song Walk On By. Five wins, 14 nominations, and almost 50 years later, this enduring pop superstar is Grammy-bound again. At the age of 73, for her most recent album, Now. Don't make me over Now that I can't make it without you This latest Grammy nomination is yet more recognition for a woman who has charted her own path through life, selling millions of records worth of big-time hits and serving as the muse for one of the most famous songwriting duos of all time, Burt Bacharach and Hal David. I'm not looking for gossip, but... I sat down with Dionne Warwick recently in Los Angeles, and it is clear this is one artist with a lot of voice still left in her. Let's talk. Let's talk. Okay. It's a good time of life for you, isn't it? Uh, it's an incredible time of life. I'm being given so many incredible accolades at this point in my life, and I, I'm, I'm wondering where it's all coming from. I know I have a heavenly father, and he does say that he's going to give blessings every now and then, but he's pouring them out like water. <laughs> and I, um, thank you. <laughs> I must say, when I got the call that you're nominated for a Grammy. Uh, the reaction was, oh, you're lying. <laughs> Grammy for what? What did I do? Well, the more important question behind that is how do you explain your longevity? You know, I have to say it's the choice of music that I've been pretty much blessed and fortunate to have had two of the most prolific songwriters of our time create specifically for me, and that being Hal David and Burt Bacharach. I have been singing words that Hal David wrote that everybody seems to relate to, and the melodies, of course, are lingering. I'm trying to give a solid message. Trying to give a solid message. What is the message? Hope, happiness, um, love, both wonderful love and unrequited love. Just good stuff. Steal away, steal away, steal away, steal away, steal away. You started in gospel music. Yes, I started in gospel. Singing church music. Well, I come from a gospel singing family. My grandfather was a minister. And the first time I ever sang in front of the congregation, 
I was six years old, and Grandpa called me up to the pulpit to sing. And I thought he lost his mind. <laughs> I said, what do you want me up here singing for? He said, I want you to sing the song that you lead in our Sunday school classes, which was Jesus Loves Me. And I, he stood me on some books so that I could see over the pulpit. And I closed my eyes as tight as I could get them. He whispered to me, if you can think it, you can do it. So sing for me. If you can think it, you can do it. That's right. And he, I opened up and I started singing. And I opened one eye <laughs> to see the other because I kept hearing murmuring from the congregation. And finally, I opened both of my eyes. And, and they all, everybody was smiling, so I must have been doing all right. And I just went at it. And when I finished, that literally was my very first standing ovation. So you sing gospel music, and you wind up, you said you were doing some backup singing. Yes. At what age was that over about? We were in high school. So 15, 16, 17 years old. And we went into the studio to do a background session for the Drifters, song written by Bob Hilliard and Bert Backrack called Mexican Divorce. I, I have said on several occasions, I must have been singing too loud in the background because Bert approached me after the session was over. And he asked if I would be interested in doing some demonstration records uh, for songs they'd be writing with a new songwriting partner, Hal David. So a relationship developed with mm -hmm. these two songwriters, Mackrat did, uh, did the music. music. David How did, did, did the words. Did the words. We became dear, dear friends. They wrote specifically for me. The most intricate melodies and time signatures that anyone would possibly ever think to sing. But it, it, it paid off. It really did. Well, you know, I'm interested, and I think those who are listening to the interview might be interested, in how some of these songs came to be, the story of the song, uh, let's start with Don't Make Me Over. <laughs> you thought I might start. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Don't Make Me Over came from something I said to um, Bird and Hal both. Um, they had written a song called Make It Easy on Yourself that I did the demonstration record for. And they kept at me, you got to record, you got to record. I kept saying, I don't want to record, I don't want Yes, you do, you have to. So I finally said, okay, if Make It Easy on Yourself is my first recording. And I said, okay, they promised. Well, the next time I heard Mixing Easy on Yourself was being sung on the radio by Jerry Butler. Well, of course, I was not too pleased about that at all. So by the time I got to the city and met with Backrack and David, I had to let them know that there was a couple of things that they could not do. And one most importantly was to try to make me over. And Hal put pen to paper in my first hit. The phrase rang in his ear, uh -huh. wrote it down, said, I can make a, a song of it. Yeah, yeah, and he did. Not only a song, but a great song. Yeah, I agree with you. Just take me inside your arms and hold me tight and always be by my side. If I Warwick was only 21 years old, and a string of hits 
would follow. Keep smiling, keep shining, knowing you can always count on me, for sure. 20 years later, Warwick found a new generation of fans with her iconic song, That's What Friends Are For. She recorded it with Elton John, Stevie Wonder, and Gladys Knight. They donated the song and its proceeds to their friend Elizabeth Taylor's campaign for AIDS research. She was sitting in the studio listening to it being recorded, and she felt that it was just the right song to get the message across to most people who were not that giving of self or understanding what the disease was and how they could be helpful. Well, given how successful the song has been, it was a big gift. Oh, it was a major gift. It started her foundation. It opened the doors for her. At the time, this was a risk for you in no small way, because first of all, AIDS was something nobody wanted to talk about. Exactly. The country was in denial. It was the pre-consciousness right. of the society about AIDS. Did you say to yourself, this is kind of risky to get involved in. Yeah, and I can understand the fear, definitely. And then, but finding out the ways that you can contract it, that was the information I wanted to get out. I wanted to educate people. And um, finally it started sinking in. And I do attribute the song, That's What Friends Are For. That got the message out better than anything I could have ever said. I want to change directions here for a moment because as I look at you and listen to you and talk about everything you've accomplished as a singer, you did this as an African-American and a woman mm -hmm. coming up in a time when it's difficult for anyone in either one of those two categories, if you will, to crack through. How has that affected you? You know, <laughs> I, I really didn't feel any of that kind of thing. Deanne's a bulldozer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the words like no or can't and those words... Uh, I'm not a part of my vocabulary. I don't use them. No, it doesn't mean anything to me. What can't doesn't mean anything to me. So I never really, never felt any real pressure, I don't think. And if there was pressure, I ignored it. Well, personal life, you've been married twice to the same man. Mm -hmm. uh, after the second time together, what, 12 years or so? Mm -hmm. so? Haven't remarried since? No. Uh, what did you take away from that? Was it marriage is not for you, or you just never found the right person again? A little bit of both of that. But, you know, I had two, I have two incredible sons who have been kind enough to give me seven incredible grandchildren. Um, and I was on the road so very much, which is something very difficult to understand. It was just um, not in the cards, I guess, you know. 
And I really have never given thought to remarrying. I had already married the man that I loved, and that was enough. Well, never given additional thought to marriage doesn't mean that you necessarily limited romance. Oh, I've had, yes, I've had companionship, yes. <laughs> so no one need feel sorry for you. No, not at all. <laughs> Throughout her career, Dionne Warwick has been praised as a master vocal technician. Using the rhythm and tenor of her remarkable voice to evoke power and pain. And her life has been as dynamic as her songs, full of notes both high and low. We've talked about a lot, as we should, about your successes. But you've had your tough times. Mm -hmm. What was the toughest? You know, when you get so accustomed to hearing your radio and hear you on it, all of a sudden that was dissipating and disappearing. And then another kind of music came into play called disco. Okay. And I felt, well, okay, maybe it's over. Um, people want to hear this instead of that. And uh, I was in, doing a television show, and Clive Davis happened to be on the same TV show. Oh, he's a big man in the business, yeah, in the record business. major, believe me. And we started talking, and he asked me, well, who are you recording for? I said, nobody. And he said, well, I just started Arista Records. I said, yeah. And he said, would you consider coming and joining the roster? I told him that's something I really had to think about, and uh, that I'm really ready just to get the business up. And he said something to me that I will always remember. He looked me square in the face and says, you may be ready to get the business up, but business is not ready to give you up. So I went to Arista, and he was right. <laughs> he was absolutely right. These questions may be the hard questions part of the interview, but we're not going to dwell on them. On the personal side of life, you've had your tough times. Yeah. Your brother died in an automobile accident when yes. he was, what, 20, 21 years old? He would have old. been 21. Your sister dies young by today's standards yes. when she's, what, 60 years 60. old? 60. Mm -hmm. Your cousin, Whitney Houston, yes. uh, passed not all that long ago, as we speak. Maybe two years this year. I know it may be difficult, but talk to me as much as you can, as much as you want to, about each of those. When you lost your brother, you were what age? Uh, let's see, I was seven years older than Pookie, so I was 26. And uh, it was quite devastating, not only to my parents, but to me because I gave him the car. So I've always, I've, I've walked around with that kind of guilt for a long period of time until I came to the realization that he was one that did what he wanted to do, how he wanted to do it, 
and really knew better than to be racing his car. So I, I finally come to grips with that. My mom and dad passed with, I mean, I, I've been losing people in my family over the past 10 years in succession. Uh, my dad passed first. And then mommy, just recently, I call it recent, it's about, it's about five years now. Dee Dee, uh, about three years, my sister. When your cousin Whitney Houston passed, you've never talked very much about that. No, I haven't. Uh, reason? What am I supposed to say? Uh, unfortunately, she made a transition at a very early age, I feel. Had so much more to give and was on the way to doing that. It was and is the way God planned it. There's nothing for me to say. I want to share something with you that's very personal with me. That when she passed and we saw the outpouring of public affection for her and respect for her music and what she had accomplished, I found myself asking, and I, I didn't know her, I met her once just very briefly, but you knew her very, very well. Yeah whether if she had had the full sense of how much she was respected, how much her work was loved, and indeed how much she was loved, she might have found a way to go on, go forward. I what do you think? totally agree with you. It was those around her that were there. And there were a lot of people that should not have been there. And your point is that they became the major influence on her. Mm -hmm. Yep. After years of battling drug abuse, Whitney Houston died the day before the 2012 Grammy Awards. She was only 48. We were very, very close. I always referred to Whitney as the little girl I never had. Very, very close. But as it turned out, you weren't able to turn her back toward the healthier, better yeah, direction. There was no way in the world that, um, I don't think anybody could have at that point in time. Whitney was in her 40s. Uh, she was a grown woman, with her own mind, and doing what she felt she wanted to do. Fair or unfair to say that her going early was, in her case, the price of fame? No. I, I'd say it was the price of choice. I don't think that fame had anything to do with it. It was just basically the choices she made. Now, in your case, you, by any standard, have been enormously successful. Mm-hmm. And then I read, and I will say, it really surprised me. Mm -hmm. Almost jaw-dropping surprise. Dionne Warwick has gone into bankruptcy. 
filed bankruptcy. I did. What, only a year and a half, two years ago? Uh, last year. Last year? Uh -huh. Bankruptcy. How can that be? What happened? Well, you know, it's, it's like everything else. Me being as, and I don't want to call myself stupid, but there, there's, there's stupid moments do happen in everybody's life. Um, you pay people, and you trust people in professions that are supposed to do what they're supposed to do. And Handle you, the money, do the accounting, yeah, pay accounting, the taxes. Attorneys, lawyers, everybody that I was supposed to have, I thought I did. You know, and I'd have to blame myself for not paying closer attention. But at the time, I thought I was. I thought I had people who, in their professions, were doing what they were supposed to do, protecting me, when in fact they were not protecting Dion. But at this point in your career, you're now, at the time this happened with bankruptcy, mm -hmm. you're past 70. Mm -hmm. And not only did you not have any money, I think I read you had, what, maybe $1,500 in the bank. No, which is not quite true. Not quite true. <laughs> more than that. Yeah, but just nonetheless, a, not much more than that. But, but nonetheless, you're facing this, and that must have been a low point. You know, it was. It, it, and when I first thought to do it, I said, do I really want to do this? Is there any way that I can muster? And finally, I said, you know, you're crazy. Yes. That's why the law was made. To go into bankruptcy. It was to alleviate the pressure so that you could rebuild your life. So your first reaction was pride. Mm -hmm. Dionne Warwick does not go into bankruptcy. Absolutely. But you know, right this very moment, I can sit here and honestly say, it was the best thing I ever did for myself. And one reason you're so busy now is making your way back? Yeah, that and um, doing what I love. I just, you know, um, as long as people want to hear me and see me, um, I'm, I'm giving myself a time frame, though. I'm not going to be in this business for the rest of my life, no. And I don't have the same wish Sammy Davis student told me he had. He wanted to die on stage. I tell you, you're crazy. You know, I, I feel that there is a period that's going to come very soon um, where I'm going to say, you know what? I've done it. So you guys continue to listen to the records. And if I happen to make one, go out and buy it. <laughs> but, you know, it, um, I am doing absolutely what I love to do. Thank you so much for coming. My pleasure. You've just been wonderful. Believe me. Thank like I told so you much. earlier, I am an, an enormous fan. Well, that's coming right back at you. Thank you. And that's the big interview for tonight. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. And that wraps up another captivating episode of Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, leave us a review and tell a friend. Thank you for joining us for Dan Rather's The Big Interview, where music and conversation unite.